as Nate comes to bring the word to us this morning, we're going to take a break uh, the next couple weeks from our Ephesians series, and we'll be back. I'll be finishing up the rest of Ephesians, um, and so we're going to take a break for the next couple of weeks, um, and, uh, and, then, and then we'll come back to Ephesians, but Nate's going to bring the word to us from John this morning. So, come on, Nate. Uh, good morning. Uh, this is my uh, last time up here for uh, the rest of the summer. So uh, that could be good news to you or it could be bad news to you. It's, it's really up to you. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. <laughs> uh, Lord Christ, we thank you for um, this morning that you have gathered us and that you have called us by your word uh, to your word. We pray that you would bless it to us and that we would be doers of it. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this week, I have been listening to, or the past couple weeks, I've been listening to a new podcast that Christianity Today came out with called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it is about uh, essentially what happened to this massive megachurch in Seattle uh, that was started by Mark Driscoll with all of this exposure and with all of these people and with all of this life change happening, how it almost ended overnight. Uh, and, and what does exposure do to us? What happens when we're exposed? Because essentially what happened with Mark is he had all of this expo- exposure, he had all of these people coming to his church, and overnight he was exposed for who he really was. He was a bully, he uh, misused the power that he was given to him, and ultimately Mars Hill isn't a church anymore, uh, all Overnight, And so today, I guess we're going to ask the question, what does it mean to be exposed by Jesus? What is this reality of the incarnation that exposes us to who Jesus really is? And I think that this story here that we're going to look at today is going to bring us to the reality that an encounter with Jesus is a dangerous place to be. That an encounter with Jesus is a dangerous place to be. So four things that I want us to consider before we enter into the text. Things to keep in mind as we walk through this. Um, it's Jesus walking into dark places, the way in which Jesus exposes our dark pasts. Jesus as light for a dark world and Jesus redeeming dark people. So as we enter into this story, we have these two characters, essentially. We have John, or we have Jesus, and we have Nicodemus. And John is telling us that Nicodemus is coming to us at a specific time. See, in the previous chapter, Jesus has announced himself in this wedding miracle that he does in Cana. He performs this first miracle, and then right after this, he goes and he cleanses the temple. And so in considering these these key points in Jesus's ministry— A lot of people would be able to point to, whether they're Christians or not, these two moments, right? That Jesus turned water into wine and that Jesus is flipping over tables up in this upheaval of the temple system. And so now we are here with Nicodemus. And if these two are very public events, this is a very private event between him and Nicodemus. It says here, In verse 23 of chapter 2, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So here, as chapter 2 transitions, we get the setting of where this is going to happen. This is Passover. This is a massive, massive event for the Jewish people, right? This is like the Super Bowl. This would have been like a Hollywood party. Everybody who was anybody was going to be there. There were going to be lots of meals. There were going to be lots of parties. There was going to be a lot of celebration. This was a time that would have been marked on your calendar if you were a Jewish person living in Jerusalem. And yet, in the midst of all of this chaos, of this massive event of the Passover, we get Jesus and Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the darkness of night. It says here, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night. And I think as we consider the audience, if you were a Jewish person reading this at the time, you'd be like, wait, what? Like what? What? what's happening? So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, not Jesus coming to Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the dark of the night as all of this is happening And he's a Pharisee as well. He's coming to Jesus. I think the only way that I could think to illustrate how this would be, it's like if you're watching something that's super uncomfortable between two people that's about to happen. It's like if you've seen The Office, the moment that Roy steps into The Office when he finds out that Jim has has kissed Pam right after this, and everyone who's watching is like, turn back. This is super uncomfortable at this point. There are two people that are very opposed to one another, that are now in the same room. This is what's happening here. Because you have Nicodemus on the one hand, who is this ruler of the Jews. He's a Pharisee. He has significant status and prominence. He's well known. And then you have Jesus, and he's coming to Jesus in the middle of the night. And I think that we, this, if we were reading this passage... Just in our quiet time, we might throw that away. Oh, he comes in the middle of the night, it's fine. No, Nicodemus is coming not to be seen. He does not want to be seen by his friends that are all out on the town during this big public event. He does not want to be seen with Jesus because Jesus is utterly opposed to all that they're doing, and yet he comes in the darkness of night. He comes hidden. He does not come wanting to be seen. He comes in the dark. He's holding back the reality of what it would mean like to come in the light. So Jesus is coming as, or Nicodemus is coming to Jesus as someone who has seen these signs. He's seen that Jesus turned water to wine in Cana, and then he saw Jesus flip over the tables, and he's like, I have to know what's going on. I, I, I can't resist, but I'm not going to come publicly because I don't want anyone to know that I am coming. And this is the problem, right? Nicodemus comes with an agenda. He comes to know, but he doesn't come to understand, right? He comes to know, but he doesn't come to understand. It says here in verse 10, as Jesus gets right to the heart of Nicodemus's problem immediately, he says, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, 
and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? See, right away we get a clear pushback because you could read this interaction and you could, you could think, oh, well, Nicodemus, he just wants to figure out what, it, what does it mean to be born again? How does someone re-enter the womb of someone? Uh, how, what do you mean all this, this being born again coming to Jesus, like, he's very confused, and we can say, oh, that's, it's just a, a, a genuine curiosity, but no, he's coming with a curiosity, a sort of seeking on his own terms. He's, he wants to be familiar with Jesus, but he doesn't want to be engaged with Jesus, and Jesus knows this right away. He says, how could you understand heavenly things when you don't understand earthly things? How do you how, do you, how are you going to know anything about things that are eternal if you don't even understand the way in which I am doing things here on earth now? You don't understand water to wine. How will you understand eternal things? I keep showing you and telling you, and you still don't want to know. See, the reality is Jesus does not deny those who come to him in spirit and truth. He denies those who come to him in darkness and with an agenda. Nicodemus doesn't want to know, and he doesn't want others to know. He sees these signs, and yet when Jesus says to him, the signs aren't the point, Nicodemus refuses to understand. He sees the signs, and he refuses to understand. He does not understand heavenly things because he does not understand the signs that are done on earth. And yet Jesus doesn't continue to try and explain the earthly things. He goes even deeper. He says, oh, you didn't even get the signs that I'm showing you right now. Well, let me take it up one more level. It's like, uh, for me, this was usually in math class. Uh, The teacher is explaining a topic that I already don't understand. And then they build on that topic. And then I'm even more confused. This is what Jesus is doing to Nicodemus. He says, oh, you don't understand. You don't know. Perfect. I'm going to take it up one more level. I'm going to take it up one more level. See, Nicodemus did not even understand the earthly manner of which Jesus was participating. And then Jesus says, oh, let me go back to the Old Testament, the book that you think you understand that you still don't understand. And at this point, I I think that Nicodemus would be embarrassed, truly. See, he comes in the middle of the night during this massive festival, and Jesus is essentially flipping the table back on Nicodemus. He has exposed Nicodemus, the one who comes by himself in the hiddenness of the night, in secret from his friends, and Jesus says to him, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus asks about the nature, again, of re-entering a womb. And if this story up to this point has told us anything, if it's told us anything, it is that our brightest ideas and our achievements and our status and our intelligence are nothing when we consider entering the presence of Jesus. They're nothing. Jesus exposes all of those things that we think are the best parts of ourselves and said, when you come to me, you come on my terms. That even at our perceived best, that we realize that in the face of Jesus, we have no understanding apart from him 
and who he is. And the conflict, I think, is that with everyone, that with everything that we bring of ourselves, when we meet Jesus, we are not only exposed in that moment, but our past is also exposed. All of who we are is exposed because Jesus is now starting to digress about the things that Nicodemus should be even more familiar with, the past, his past, his people's past, that he is supposed to understand and be an expert in, and he confuses him even more. He says in verse 13, starting in verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, Jesus is proclaiming to Nicodemus and John to this Jewish audience as they're hearing this story again that something far greater is occurring at this, at this point. That the Messiah that they have longed for, the salvation that Nicodemus is seeking, the sign of the times is here. The one who has come for you has arrived and he has not come in the way that we thought. See, for Nicodemus, it's becoming more and more dangerous the more that Jesus continues to talk. For the audience, they're starting to see the progression of the ways in which Jesus is explaining to them all that they ever knew. See, in this interaction, at this point, there's no turning back for Nicodemus. He is stuck right where he is at. And Jesus is drawing us in and he's exposing the past See, to mention Moses here and the salvation that came by way of the staff of the serpent is not just to mention the past in an abstract way, right? It's not an abstract history. It is a personal history. It's Israel's history. It's his story just as much as it is his people's story who had walked in the wilderness. There is an identity of Nicodemus with his people to the past, It's a personal history, and it's exposing the fact that the one who saved them in their past is the only one who can save them from their past, because the only one worthy to save Israel is the only hope for them and Nicodemus now, that the greater Moses has now arrived, and the problem is readily present Because Nicodemus is ignorant to the fact that his pursuit of knowledge to ascend to the Father will not be enough. It will not be his status amongst the Jews that will save him from himself. It is not his identity as a Jew that's going to save him. All the impressions that he had of what it meant to be saved by the Messiah, Jesus says, nope, not going to work. That's not what it is. You won't be saved for being a Pharisee, Nicodemus. You won't be saved by your earthly understanding, Nicodemus. You won't be saved because your father is Abraham. You will be saved by the one who freed you in Israel. You will be freed by the one who has come to you in the flesh and is standing right in front of you. And you'll be saved by the one who not just came for Israel, but came for the Israel of God, for his people. He's doing something new. 
Because it's not what Nicodemus is seeing that will save him, but the one who's speaking to him. See, he comes to Jesus because of what he saw. He comes to Jesus because he's seen these signs. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The one who's doing the signs is who you need to be concerned with, not the signs. The only one that can save him is the only one who can save the world from such a darkness. The only one that Nicodemus can trust is the one who is standing right in front of him. And the problem here then is not that Nicodemus is simply ignorant, right? It's that he's unwilling to see what is before him because he cannot believe what he is seeing. And the question that needs to be answered for us is whether or not we can see that we are utterly exposed, just like Nicodemus. I mean, if we really want to enter into the story properly, then we have to see that we too come in the dark. We too come with an agenda for our encounters with Jesus. We too deep down think that our religiosity or our piety or our status will make us good enough. And the state that Jesus comes into this world is one that is hustling tied. Everyone's looking to hide because Jesus exposes the best and worst parts of us. It's one that is utterly consumed by darkness, and yet we run from the exposure that the light brings. The world is exposed at this point, and yet everyone is trying to hide because we run from the one who both knows us and sees us. And what Jesus is telling us here is that the world is exposed for what it is and it cannot run anymore. There's nowhere to hide. Jesus is here. Nicodemus is seeing him and he realizes in the irony of him coming in hiddenness in the dark to Jesus, he can't hide any longer. The place that he thought was the most hidden is now the most exposed for him. He's come and there's nowhere to hide. And yet we try to do that in our daily lives, right? We try to make ourselves look better. We try to keep our quiet time schedule in order to somehow check off this box. So if Jesus does see us, we can say, oh, I, 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 did, it this, I did it this morning. You can see that. We, we prayed before dinner. We did that. I gave, I gave tithes on Sunday. Did you see that, Jesus? Did you see that? And meanwhile, all these things are the ways in which we try to hide. We do, we do all of these good things, and then we say, oh, don't look at me. Just look at all of these these nice things that I've done over here. And yet our story of coming in the darkness, just like Nicodemus, is one that is exposed to the glory that is the cross. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. See, John is entering in with this commentary in the midst of this story to us, that the glory of the cross is where God puts to rest our hiding. He puts to rest our hiding. Or, as the prophet Isaiah proclaimed in chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs 
and carried out our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The glory of God is that is that which has been unleashed on the world to save sinners like you and I and like Nicodemus. That's the cross. We desire to put the cross to shame, and the cross puts us to shame. See, at the height of this encounter, at the height of Nicodemus' searching, at the height of our story, at the height of the story of the world, is the exposure that we would never want or never ask for. That in the cross of Christ, we are loved not despite or because of our sin, but loved at the cross that frees us from sin. That we have found our eternal exposure in the darkness of the cross. And that God does not save us outside of the world because the world is dark. No, he saves us in the world. God comes to us and saves us in the world. And that those who are his not only get exposed by the glory of the cross, but are given new life in this light. That God came into the darkness for those of us who come in the darkness because we cannot find our own way out. We're stuck. And the glory of God is one that loves to save sinners like you and I because we are found and given every ounce of attention in God who died on a cross for you and I. We are given every amount of exposure that we could ever ask for. And yet the cross is not singularly for us, right? But the saints of old who could only see a pillar of fire in the dark. Nicodemus knew that his people had followed this pillar of light in the dark. They had seen the sign. But what Nicodemus doesn't see here is a defining feature of this because as the saints of old who had waited in anticipation for a greater Savior, those who in darkness walked through the desert and entered the promised land in anticipation who were exiled over and over, those who called upon God without a sign, and yet in faith they were called, they waited for this Messiah. Not their own idea of a Messiah like Nicodemus, not one who is going to create their own political upheaval, but one who found glory in being embarrassed for the sake of us as true sons and daughters of Abraham. See, the height of history is the height of Nicodemus's failure to see history through this Messiah. The height of this encounter is the height of our story, and it's the apex of God's story. Uh, a few years ago, I was able to study abroad in Israel and uh, for two of those weeks, we were doing service-oriented projects and mission work in Jerusalem and surrounding areas. And we went to this nursing home one day, and we were talking to this lady about Jesus. 
and she had an Old Testament with her, and we were asking her if she had ever read uh, Isaiah 53. She said, oh, yes, yes, I've read it, I've read it. Um, and we were pressing her. We asked, well, what do, you, what do you think that it's about? And she said, well, I don't know. I haven't read it in a long time. I said, well, let's read it. Let's read it now. And uh, she went and she got her Old Testament, which is just their Bible. It's the whole thing for them, not half. Uh, she gets it out and uh, she says, well, that this chapter isn't in here. It had been taken out. It had been left out of the book. It had been intentionally omitted. And she said, will you get me a new one? Because I need this chapter because it's missing. And Nicodemus misses the chapter right in front of him. It's not omitted for him in this book by accident or intentionality. No, the chapter for Nicodemus is right here. And yet he refuses to believe the reality that is right before him. And just as he comes in darkness to Jesus, he's going to stumble away in darkness. But for us, there is yet another way. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only Son of God. Of the unsearchableness that could be found in Jesus, what Nicodemus can't see is where we find our freedom For the beaten and the broken, for those who cannot even bring themselves to walk to Jesus in the dark, but desire to be hidden, there is freedom in the gospel that Jesus comes to us and that through his condemnation, we are no longer condemned. He was nailed to a cross so that we would gladly be released from the nails in our own sin He was buried so that we would be lifted up. Jesus comes and is broken down for the brokenhearted. Or, as Dane Ortland said in his new book, Gentle and Lowly, which I haven't gotten yet, but I want to read. Uh, Someone posted this on their story, and I thought, "This this is perfect. It says, When Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. And this is the freedom of the cross. That an encounter with Jesus is one which exposes us not in condemnation, but in freedom for those who believe in the one who has died for him. That the freedom from condemnation is the exposure of the cross that saves us. So what's the response for us? What is Nicodemus' response? What are the choices? What is the end of our story with Jesus here this morning? What does Nicodemus stumble away from? Verse 19 And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness 
rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. As Nicodemus, I think, is walking away from this this conversation, I think the question is presented to us, right? If, if the cross is judgment for those who are evildoers, if the cross exposes all of what we do, all of who we are, then who are we? Who are we? And where have we placed our hope? Where is my hope? Where is your hope? And for sinners who are found in Jesus who are judged by the cross, they are judged according to the one who died for them. The cross is is judgment whether you're saved or not. It's whether or not you are judged because of what Christ has done for you or whether you have judged the cross. See, if you've decided to place yourself above the cross... That leaves your judgment in the sin that you have chosen. You've chosen to say, I'm bigger and better than this cross. And we'll be judged for our sin. But for those who have said, I cannot move from the darkness. I cannot see any longer, and I desire nothing but sight. For those of us who who wander with no light to walk in in the desert, And say, Lord, save me from myself because I have nowhere to wander anymore. The judgment, their judgment, our judgment is Christ's perfect work. See, Nicodemus' problem is that Nicodemus stands above the cross seeing only the sign that is before him and not the son that gives the sign. And yet, what cannot be missed, what cannot be missed is that the sign comes from the sun. Nicodemus saw the miraculous and settled for magic, some magic explanation to what had happened. And as Christians, we do not get magic. We get a miraculous savior who judges us based on his work. And the real danger that Nicodemus is warning us of in this example, as we are Nicodemus, is to be wary of the way in which we place ourselves over the cross rather than being perfectly judged by the cross. We do not get to stand over God as though we get to choose what we like and what we don't like. We don't get to make Jesus what we like him to be. We don't get to do that. We don't get to take God's word and stand over it and judge which parts are good and which parts are old and outdated. We don't get to do that. We get to be submitted to a judge who loves to save sinners. That's who we get to be submitted to. And when Jesus is your savior, your judge is not just your judge, but your friend who knows you as you are exposed for all that you have done and says, I see you for all that you are and I love you. As exposed as Nicodemus was, he missed the joy that comes in letting go of wanting exposure from the world 
and getting exposed by someone who is truly gentle and lowly. He missed that. He missed someone who was willing to call sinners his friend, and he, he, was, he missed being exposed by someone who is willing to be embarrassed that we may be embarrassed no more. And so, verse 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What then becomes of those who God has saved out of darkness into glorious light? What is left for sinners who have a friend in Jesus? What are we called to as those who are judged by the work of Christ? And Nicodemus at this point, at the end of this encounter, I'm sure that he would have loved to get out of there. It's like one of those conversations that you get into uh, at a dinner where there's lots of people or um, maybe at a really big church where you're meeting someone new. You realize that the conversation just kind of keeps going and going and going. And you're like, I was supposed to be somewhere like 15 or 20 minutes ago, but you're still talking like sometimes like Chris likes to do at the caffeinery, he'll just keep he'll just keep talking to people. That's that's where Nicodemus is at right now. He's waiting. He said, I should never have come in the darkness. There is no going back on this conversation. So the result is this that those who have been saved are seen by the fruits of their heart. That, that, that our deeds are seen as good because our Savior is good. That's the result. Those who have been judged by the cross don't judge others, but invite them to be judged by the cross. See, he's flipping the table on Nicodemus again because Nicodemus originally comes into the conversation having been amazed by the things that Jesus did. I think that's true. Nicodemus was truly amazed at what Jesus could do. And now he's being told, hey, remember the signs that you believed in? Yeah, the signs are just a result of who I am. And the same is true of you. The same is true of us. The signs and the things that we do, the way in which we participate in the world are just signs of being judged by a perfect Savior that we might not judge others, but invite them to be saved in Jesus Christ, to find hope and no longer being embarrassed because someone was willing to be embarrassed for you. That someone was buried that we might be lifted up again. Let's pray. Lord Christ, we thank you that you are gentle and lowly towards us. We thank you that you took on the wrath of God for us and that we are judged by your work and not our work. We pray for those of us who still feel like we are wandering in darkness, that you would give us sight, that you would give us clarity. We pray, Lord, that when the night seems darkest, your night was darker for us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.